Welcome to the Cybersecurity Ambassadors podcast. I'm Connor, and from the team here today, we have uh, Bryson, Lauren, and Fred Britton. Oh, and Cole. <laughs> <laughs> so Fred's, Fred's the Chief Information Officer for the State of Maine, so thank you very much for joining us today. Lovely to be here. So before we uh, get into the questions, can you talk a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I actually came up, I'm originally from the Boston area, and I had come up to the University of Maine, specifically Farmington, back in the early 90s to finish my studies uh, and just loved it up here. And I loved the university. Uh, and they actually hired me about six months before I graduated uh, in IT. This was, gosh, I even hate to say it, 1994. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had started there. And I stayed with the university system. I mean, and it went through a number of uh, perturbations over the years, including, and you may be aware that IT is consolidated across the, the university. So I was a part of um, mm. getting that consolidation done uh, over those years. So I had a chance to do all sorts of things across IT. I actually served for a while as uh, chief operating officer for the University of Maine Farmington. Uh, I actually had an office down here for a couple of years in Portland where I would spend two days a week. Um, so, you know, I, I loved the university. I love the university mission. Uh, so it was a great fit for me and actually really hard to leave when I did. And today um, we have some questions about what it's like being the chief information officer and also some more questions about, about your background and other roles you've had. So I'll turn it over to Bryce. Yeah, so to kick it off, uh, how has uh, your background kind of helped you get you uh, where you are today? Okay. So when I started in IT, uh, IT, you know, I don't want to go so far as to say it was a hobby for institutions, but if a computer network went down for a day, it wasn't a big deal. Um, can you imagine that today? If, <laughs> if our systems disappeared for a day, no problem. We just keep going. Yeah. Uh, registrar's office had, you know, lots and lots of file cabinets, and that's how they operated. So it was really, a, it was a different era. Um, but coming in, I mean, my, my sort of natural desire at the time was I, I really liked the engineering. I, I led uh, the networking team for a period of time. I've led a uh, programming team. Um, I've done a lot around policy. And so I got to do a lot of different things over the years at the university. And I, I actually felt more like if I had to describe, if you asked me to describe my position then, I would have said, what I think I am is an administer, administrator in higher education with a specialty in technology because I was involved in initiatives around student success and, you know, various enrollment challenges. I, uh, I was implementing a strategic plan for a campus that included developing new academic programs. And so I had, I had a chance to try out a lot of things. Uh, coming across to the state actually was a lot easier for me. I spent a lot of time talking to my 49 other peers across the country, and many of them came from industry, and the change to the public sector is really difficult for them. I found that shift to be relatively easy uh, from some perspectives in that uh, the state as well as the university, one of the requirements is a high degree of transparency, um, a very different form of governance than a, than a typical private sector hierarchical structure, um, a lot of laws in place to protect against, um, 
you know, mishandling of funds, things around like buying stuff and public procurement process and making sure that everything is open and fair. So a lot of those things, working with uh, a staff that are members of unions, was something that it happens at the university, happens at the state. So there was a lot of familiarity for me. Uh, so I, I would say the background for me was having kind of a broad base of the technology, uh, but also having a lot of experience working with uh, bringing groups together to, to gain consensus around paths forward uh, and how to work with various types of administration and people. And I think the university was a great place to both to learn that and implement that. Uh, it's a really, it's a thriving environment. So can you just give us a little rundown of what your typical day looks like? Yeah, there's the typical day and then there's the day that you start that you think is going to be a typical day and it's not. <laughs> so... Uh, for As a CIO, I have a number of responsibilities. Some of them are looking inward and managing uh, the day-to-day -day operations of, a, of an IT organization. And I have some really strong leaders in my organization that make that uh, not as difficult a job as it could be. And I certainly hear from some of my colleagues elsewhere, you know, the struggles they have. And I have an, we have an excellent team. I have an excellent team here in Maine. Another part of my job is external facing with our agencies. And the predominant role of IT and state government is we serve agencies and we help them serve the public. So most of our actions are sort of indirect as far as we face the public. Uh, and that's actually changing. And we could talk about some of that a little bit later. Uh, but then there's the atypical day. And those happen for any number of reasons. It could be something related to cyber. It could be um, something related to the weather. It could be something like COVID that created a lot of atypical days uh, for us, particularly early on, and changing priorities very quickly, and initiatives that under normal circumstances would be planned and thought out six months ahead of time. And we at the state didn't have that kind of luxury for many of our initiatives. There were things that we were having to say, we have federal money to help, say, with uh, housing. And we can't spend three months thinking about and planning a system to get that distributed. That's something that we got to get out to the public. We got to do it rapidly. So it sort of changed the dynamic. That's a, a, an example. But, um, you know, I'll give you one, you know, kind of specific event was, uh, it was probably a year or so ago. And it's about four o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and the phone rings. And I, my, my Saturday, I had a bike ride planned and uh, I had some plans. That was my typical Saturday, right? <laughs> yeah. And they said, well, we've lost cooling in the data center. And by the way, there's an ice storm going on. So we're dispatching staff to get to that data center. We have two in Maine. Um, I said, I, I'm going. So, you know, at four in the morning, I get in the car and slide my way across to Augusta. Uh, and the reality for the CIO is we have systems that are going to overheat. So we're trying to figure out what can we shut down to bring the temperatures down before things cook? What do we need to fail over to another data center and sort of orderly? What is the nature of the business that's going on on a Saturday morning? I am not so helpful as far as pushing buttons on the, on the boxes. I'm not so helpful at the keyboard. So why am I there? I have a qualified staff who are really good in this kind of an event. What does a CIO do? CIO, my job is, is multifold. One is, can I at the very least bring folks that are there breakfast? <laughs> like, I can do that. <laughs> Support the team. Know that I'm there for them. Number two, if we have to make decisions, priority decisions, about what to bring back first, now these are business decisions. What's most important? 
uh, on a Saturday morning? Could it be systems related to benefits that people might be using, you know, food benefits uh, that they need their cards for and they're going to be shopping that day? That's pretty important. Uh, and so if those kinds of decisions need to be made, that's where I need to be there. Another is communications. If we don't think we're going to get things back online in a reasonable space, who are we talking to? What are, are we talking to the governor's office? Are we talking to commissioners of various agencies? So there's a number of roles for the CIO on that atypical day that are not necessarily hands-on keyboard, but making sure that we're prioritizing along the lines of the business and we're communicating well. So mm -hmm. those days happen, and uh, my assistant is pretty good at uh, figuring out how to move things around on my calendar. And, you know, there are days where I have a full calendar of meetings and appointments, and those days get scrapped, and it happens. But I guess kind of, a, I guess a big summary is just really a typical day is, well, you, you, there really never is a typical day. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> that's fair. whatever it brings. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Can you tell us um, a little bit about your transition from, you know, CIO of the um, University of Maine system to um, the state of Maine? Yeah, I can. So I talked a little bit about some of the things that are similar, uh, the transparency, complex governance. Uh, a lot of public procurement and union policies and all of those, those are similar and they helped with the transition a lot. The things that I wasn't accustomed to was the scope. The scope of state government is much larger. And for me personally, after being a higher education person for 25 years, I had a great deal of comfort in understanding the sort of the deep context of the services we provided. So when we start talking about early warning systems for students uh, who maybe aren't performing well in class and how we're doing interventions, I knew a lot about that, right? And I, so I understood really the business and how to translate that into technology and have those conversations. One of the things I found in the state is the scope is so broad that I can no longer really be the expert in all of those lines of business. So it's mm -hmm. caused me to have to take a different move as to you know my listening and asking questions and really relying on experts more instead of just myself. Mm -hmm. So that's a change. Um, certainly, uh, the other thing that I think is probably a big one is information security. So coming from the university, uh, and you said you talked to the chief information security officer recently, John Forker. One of the things that was a surprise for me is that the university you want lots of people to be able to come and access your network. Mm -hmm. You want guests and you want, you know, traveling scholars and the, you know, you really need to have a network that supports individual faculty research, running software packages that they're acquiring, um, really an open network students coming into residence halls with, I don't know how many devices now, but Xboxes, oh, and, oh, yeah. you know, umpteen <laughs> different things they're putting on the network and the university has to make sure that access is the first priority. Um, then I go to the state and discover we have a very, you know, we are protecting every network jack. If we don't know what it is, it's not going to work. Every device that plugs into our network, we have uh, deep insight into and we're actually managing security tools. So it's a very different environment where we're not saying bring in the public. We're saying we have to protect every asset on our network. So that was a, a little bit of a different, that's a change mm -hmm. for me going from more of an access to a closed model with information security. So what do you think has changed the most since you started as uh, chief information officer? Um, I, I think there, there's, a, there's been a variety of changes. Um, I will say the, the place that I think um, 
this administration has moved the needle the most is on cybersecurity. Uh, this administration's been really good about responding to the need, saying we need to put more funding, we need to provide support, uh, we're going to need stronger policies. And so we've really put the pedal down over the last three and a half years as to what we're doing with cyber. Um, that's one big change. The other big change that I see coming down the road is the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, also people may know it as the IAJA, uh, brought in money around cyber for state and local cyber response. And the thing that is being asked by, um, I think you guys are probably familiar with CISA, the cyber, yeah. Mm -hmm. They, CISA, uh, the bill went in, uh, was signed by President Biden last fall, and it describes what they call a whole of state approach to cyber, which is a recognition that it's really hard for every individual group to maintain all the various elements of cyber. And so what they were looking to is to say, we know local governments are at risk. Um, we want to have the state take on a more coordinating role across and help prioritize investments. Uh, and we're going to give you money. So one of the goals that we have and, and roles we have coming up is we've submitted our application for the funding uh, for that. And we'll be uh, gathering local governments and you know, other key stakeholders to say, how do we come up with a statewide cyber plan? The first step uh, this spring will be some assessments of local governments to say, you know, what is our baseline? Where are we at? So that's a big role. That sort of takes us. I described our role as predominantly we serve agencies who serve the public. This brings us out a little bit more. So that's a changing element. And then the other thing is coming out of the American Rescue Plan, there's some funds uh, for us to really streamline how the public interacts with government on digital platforms. So I think you folks are familiar with my campus. That was a project that actually sat under me when I was with the university. And our goal is to do something similar where we can do something for the public that gives them sort of targeted applications, you know, the single sign-on and, and all of those things. So that also brings us out another layer where some of those applications, right, they're provided by different agencies. But we're coming forward saying we're going to provide a framework and a, and a, and a, and a system directly for, for the public. So that's part of the other changing role with us. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the main IT and the type of services it provides uh, for the state of Maine? Sure. And if you were to sit down my 49 peers at this table and say, describe your organization, you would get 49 different answers. So I'll tell you a little bit about how Maine is structured, and some of this is in law, um, set in statute from about 20 years ago was that Maine is a fully consolidated IT state. So IT positions all report up through Maine IT. Uh, we have a lot of people who are, you know, 100% allocated to a specific agency. So we have a team of developers who do nothing but support the CDC. We have a unified help desk across this for, you know, all of state government. We have one networking team. We have one voice team. Uh, so a lot of those different pieces all fall under this umbrella. So we provide pretty much all technology services. We are also, uh, one shift I could have mentioned, I see more and more, is we're doing less building things locally, particularly in the app dev space. More and more every time a big system needs replacement, instead of saying we're going to build it ourselves or we're going to buy something and put it on our servers in the data center, we're looking at managed services. So a lot of what we're doing uh, there's more around procurement, more around contracts, and making sure that all of our policies and our monitoring of those vendors is strong. So that's another thing that we do in our organization. 
So how do you differentiate your job with um, the chief information security officer for the state of Maine? And do you two kind of collaborate often? Uh, how do you do so? We are probably, we connect in one way or another, probably on a daily basis. Uh, no question. So our, that is a key position for the state. So he and I connect almost daily. His role is he spends a lot of time developing strategy, following industry, saying we need a product that fits in here, uh, working with his team on policy. We also spend a lot of time in audits for around various types of regulatory compliance. We have um, CMS coming in from the federal government looking at um, Medicare systems. We have um, the IRS looking at tax systems. I mean, every most of our agencies have some sort of uh, federal regulatory compliance they have to meet, and we spend a lot of time in those audits, and that falls under our CISO's shop uh, predominantly. So I usually don't get involved with vendors and the specific products, right? They always call and say, can't we get a meeting with you? And I say, well, I, I'm not going to pick your product. Nate's going to come to me, and he's going to talk about, I'd like to invest in here, and I think we need to strengthen our, our position over here, and we, we discuss those strategies. Another place that he and I work really closely is around risk management because we can't, and I think you folks know that in your program, we can't turn around and say everything we do is 100% secure. That's never going to happen. So we make decisions on a daily basis about where can we accept a certain degree of risk uh, what's the impact of it if it happens? What's the impact? What's the likelihood of it happening? And so that's a place that Nate and I go back back and forth quite a bit is talking about risk and what risks are we willing to accept and what's the you know what's the harm if we to the business if we don't accept the risk? What's the danger to the state if we do accept it? So that's that consumes probably a lot of our time. Uh, but I often think of my role as getting out there making sure that he has the right level of funding and support uh, to do his job. And he does an excellent job. So, um, in your opinion, what major changes in IT and cybersecurity have you seen since the beginning of your career? Probably most predominant is the nature of the threat actors out there. When I started in <laughs> 1994, uh, what was cyber to us at the university? Well, you know, you probably ought to have antivirus, but even that was optional. Um, and I could tell a little story later about why that shouldn't have been optional on my desktop. Um, but the, the people who were coming after us, the, the folks that were really worrying about cyber in the mid-90s, it was NASA. It was, the, you know, it was those big federal agencies. We weren't thinking of ourselves as targets. What we thought we were in the mid-90s was the only interest people had in us was twofold. One was they want to get at somebody, a, a, a more interesting target, and they're going to use our, our systems to sort of breach those, sit there, and attack somewhere else. We're just a jumping off point. They don't, they're not interested in us. And then the other was, and I think the term's still kicking around, is the script kiddies. You know, mm -hmm. oh, I, look, I can download this thing, and I can get on, and, you know, I'll show my friends, and isn't it cool? And, you know, the, the, the idea, the picture of the hacker I had in my brain in the 90s was, it's a kid in his parents' basement taking a break from Xbox to, you know, fool around. Mm. That's not the case anymore. Today, it's sophisticated. It is people who go into their office every day whose job is to, is to break in to systems. Um, the, they want to ruin our reputations. They want to make money, uh, potentially take citizen data and sell that. I mean, whatever their purpose is, these are very sophisticated actors. And nobody 
uh, is really above it anymore. I mean, we, we saw that a couple years ago in Texas when 23 uh, communities were ransomed at exactly the same time by the same group. They went after small communities. They weren't going to make big bank. They were looking, you know, they were going to make some money. They were looking to show the disruption. Uh, so that's the big change is this has turned into a very serious game where it wasn't. And, you know, my little story about why I should have had a virus was it was like 1998. And I was building scripts for that, distributing disks for students who were moving into residence halls to get their system up on the network. It wasn't quite as straightforward. And we had... You know, these disks we would hand out when they showed up and they moved in. And I managed to get uh, a virus on my computer, which then went to the disks oh, <laughs> that we distributed oh, to students. And the yeah. virus was called the Marburg virus. And all it did was you'd get little red X's that would appear almost like uh, the chicken pox on, on your screen. Huh. Pretty benign. I mean, embarrassing for me. But, like, in my mind... At the time, like, mm. that's the worst thing that's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. Is it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, and you have to say, oh, here's how you remove it. You've got to <laughs> communicate. You've got to go through that. But yeah. today, the stakes are super high. And, you know, I know you may have people come in and they say, here's the cost of a breach. And they attach a dollar amount. And they attach the dollar amount based on here's lost revenue, potentially, uh, and the cost of recovery, and they're putting dollar amounts to it. And I would argue that in our world, the dollar amounts, they're important, but they're not the, the real issue. The real issue is we have to provide service to our citizens. Mm. And if those services are broken, we have people who might not get financial assistance they need. We may have businesses who are thinking about coming to Maine that don't come. There's an economic impact. And then there's the loss of trust in government, where citizens say, you had my data and you, you let them get it. I don't want to give you my data again. And that's a really important thing for us is it's, yeah. a, it's mm -hmm. a precious thing that we have, which is all of your data. And everything we need to do to protect that is key. So the, the costs for us go well beyond just the, the monetary. Yeah, certainly, mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you see the um, future of cybersecurity shaping the different policies that you're making at um, Maine IT within like the next three to five years? One of the things we've done is, um, you know, I, I have a computer science degree. So when I think of, you know, my first reaction to cyber is I need tools. I want this thing, that this pane of glass that's showing me what's coming across my network. And, I, you know, I, I go to the, the engineering stuff. Yeah. But um, what we've done, and we're in the process doing again, actually, I should be getting the report in the next couple of weeks, is two years ago we had an outside firm come in and we said, you know, give us an external evaluation of our cyber program. And they use, are you familiar with the NIST standards? Yep. Yeah. Yes. So they, they align it with the NIST, NIST standards, and they came back, and they gave us a maturity score, and they said, here's the things that um, caused your score to be lower. And they prioritized them and said, do we think this is, you know, along NIST standards, this is the most critical. So we then take that and use that as a roadmap. Uh, I've asked my CISO, I said back in the summer, I want to have another, evalu that same evaluation done this winter. Uh, because I want to be able to look and say, where have we moved the needle and what should our next set of priorities be? And what we discover again and again is we're doing a, we're doing a good job with those tools. And what those really highlight for us is where are our policies? Uh, where is our particularly things like recovery processes? Because we know nobody's 100% safe. So just as important as having defenses is having plans for recovery. 
So we're continuing to enhance our program every year. Uh, we're talking with the administration about what's our next step. And, you know, I think it's clear that we're never going to hit the point where we say, okay, check the box. We have done cyber and it's, it's we just, now <laughs> yeah. we just run it. It's, it's uh, you know, it is an evolving creature. So, uh, you know, the things that I think are particularly important are around education of employees. I, I suspect you folks are aware that, you know, 90% of ransom events start with um, some sort of social engineering. And every time you hear these stories, it was somebody clicked a link, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. hey, guess what? You won. <laughs> or, you know, we do tests yeah. and I shouldn't I shouldn't out the tests because I don't want the, the state staff who might listen. <laughs> but we will send things like, oh, my gosh, you have a new message in Facebook. And like, oh, the draw of that. You just want to oh, click yeah. and then you yeah. remember, wait a second, I don't think my main.gov is even connected to Facebook. No, yeah. it is not. So, you know, those kinds of tests are things, you know, we're always looking at our, we do a mandatory cyber training uh, for all state employees. And we're always looking at the effectiveness of that. We do these phishing exercises and we're always just trying to move that needle and make it better and better, reduce the risk. So I see us continuing down that path. Um, we are, you know, as I, I t talked about the upcoming work with local governments, we're also spending more and more time in conversations with federal partners, um, with our vendors, and with other states. So there is an organization federally funded uh, called the um, Multi-State, uh, it's MSISAC, Information Sharing and Analysis Center, that uh, actually operates some tools. They send alerts. They share a lot of intel. Uh, and our CISO is a member of the board, actually. He's a recent appointment to that board. That's really important. Um, a number of us, myself included, have Homeland Security um, security clearance, so we can enter classified briefings. Um, so uh, we're finding more and more our conversations beyond our own walls with other people as to what are they experiencing. And it's a two-way street. Uh, if we see something, we're also reporting up, saying if we're seeing it, another state might see it. And so that sort of sharing of information is getting really critical. So I see that enhanced, being enhanced, too. Yes, certainly. Kind of wanted to just follow up on that. Um, I know you mentioned how like training with, um, I'm assuming you use like a service like No Before or something, but just yeah. for like fishing and stuff. I, it always is kind of interesting that it really is just how it always begins. It's always just you had one employee that didn't notice the bait and took mm -hmm. and just took it. Um, and I'm curious, like, I, I don't know if I can ask this, but I remember <laughs> I was talking to, you know, a relative of mine who worked for the state of Virginia and, he mentioned how the always unfortunate thing is that they're when they do their training, I don't know where in particular what's that but they it always is kind of the same kind of people. They always fail the test every time. So do you think like I, I mean, I don't know if I can ask this, but like it's probably I'm assuming you probably the training the more and more people fail it, probably the less and less clearance they get. Or something. Or I guess it depends on the person if you, how much they're needed, but yeah, I, we do monitor. I mean, as I said, it's, it, it is a mandatory training. One of the things that was common five years ago was you get an hour of training once a year. Best practices around this are more frequent training. Keep it at the top of mind. So we've kind of broken our training down. Now it's a semi-annual training, but we're, we've really increased those fishing uh, exercises such that it's a minimum of monthly. Uh, and I certainly know I've gotten more than just one in a month many times and so what we're trying to do is keep it top of mind for people like they don't let them forget cyber on that same front we know 
who clicks on those emails, on those exercises. We know who doesn't finish. And so one of the things we've started to do is to talk with agencies and say, hey, you might have an employee who has failed this three times over. Can you do some work? So bringing management in to help work with that person uh, and figure out where to go from there. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and with our in our last episode um, with Senator King, actually, he talked about how the number one thing we can do to improve the state of Maine cybersecurity is just general education, you know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> having a smarter um, general population. It is. And so if that. I could add live a little bit there yeah, for go you, ahead. Um, I think you, you guys are probably aware that one of the big initiatives for the, for the state, not necessarily IT, is the expansion of broadband. So. Yes. Million, I mean, yes. there's a big announcement yesterday mm -hmm. with the NTIA and the governor and Andrew mm -hmm. Butcher, who's the president of the Maine Connectivity Authority. Uh, lots of money coming into broadband. That's great. Creates lots of challenges, too. Uh, we, so, I, you know, it, to the degree that you look at some of those plans, you'll see a lot of money invested in training people. So getting broadband to someone's house if they don't have a device, they don't know how to use the device, and cyber. So this actually does create more exposure, so it's also incumbent upon us to think about the education that goes with it and what can we do at the state level. And I think that's a job that the Maine Connectivity Authority and the Connect Maine Authority, there's two different organizations, have really been um, thoughtful about and are taking very seriously. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I've actually had my hands uh, in that on the front lines, um, you know, because obviously Maine's expanding its backbone with fiber uh, obviously, this is a long process, but they've kind of started mostly in the Portland area and working their way up. And uh, I've kind of had a lot of firsthand experience. Actually, I was working with that fiber at the pole into the home. Um, and a lot of these people have no idea what we're doing uh, or, or really what kind of services they're getting. Uh, a lot of them seem to think they're just uh, another form of getting ripped off or something. But, you know, definitely, <laughs> definitely an education gap there of people understanding mm you know, the, the tools that come with that, you know, um, but to keep things moving, um, how do you, how do you stay current with all of this going on? You know, all these new bills getting passed that allow for this development, uh, or even cyber attacks and innovations in the industry. And this is why we can't just sit behind our little snowbank on our own. <laughs> uh, there's so much activity out there. Um, I serve, uh, actually, on the executive committee, there's a National Association of Chief Information Officers. Uh, actually, I just got back from an event out west um, Wednesday night. And we actually do a top 10 across state CIOs every year. We survey them every single year. What's the number one priority for state CIOs? It's mm -hmm. cyber. So you can imagine that we, 50 states, are talking about cyber a lot. Our chief information security officers have events of their own. Sometimes they join our events, and they have a national conversation. Those national conversations also include federal partners, uh, and there is private sector, and there's a lot of intelligence that comes out of the private sector. So we also get briefings from some of the larger private sector partners we work with, uh, but we've had uh, members of the, you know, folks from D.C. come and speak with us as well. But from all sorts, sort of all angles that I mentioned, the MSI SAC, you know, just a yet another forum where we're talking at the national level about cyber challenges. Uh, and we're really thrilled to have folks like Senator King who recognize the dangers in cyber and doing the work they do on the Hill. Yeah. Yeah, I was 
honestly, it was it was really amazing when I was talking. I didn't realize just how involved um, he was, and that was that was really amazing to see uh, Maine leading the way and stuff like that. Um, but on to kind of our last question, uh, on your LinkedIn profile, you have it written that you engage in developing future leaders through providing opportunities for growth, uh, as well as, as engaging in formal and informal mentorship. Um, uh, I guess, um, you know, kind of, why do you think that's important? Uh, so I, I mentioned earlier, I have a really strong team. And I would like to say that others that came before me would think of me as a member of their really strong team. And I've had a lot of opportunities over the years for growth. I've had a lot of people who took me under their wing and, you know, became trusted advisors, mentors. I actually had a, you know, I had a moment a number of years ago where I was with the university and I went to some, uh, her name was Susan Mitros. She was the deputy CIO for University of Southern California. And I actually did the thing where I said, would you be my mentor? Mm -hmm. I felt like I was getting down <laughs> on one knee and scared that she might say no. But uh, those relationships have been so positive for me. Uh, for people to help engage with me, I have a difficult situation. Can you can you help me walk through this? Have you done something like this before? And at the beginning of my career, I didn't necessarily have someone saying, we'd like to send you to this um, you know, leadership institute. And I kind of had to go out and beg for those things. Um, and I had some colleagues, you know, other institutions and whatnot that were doing those. And I recognized their growth and I wanted some of that. And I, so I fought for some of the things that I got over the years. Um, and I, I want to make sure that people who want those opportunities can get them. So one of the concepts that may seem odd as we talk about cybersecurity and IT is uh, the work around emotional intelligence. And so being a student of EI, uh, I think has made me a better leader. And it's something I try to help um, my staff get to as well. And that involves coaching people. And there's a couple of terms. Um, there's a there's a term called coaching for compliance, and then there's another, the, the opposing view on that is coaching for compassion. And coaching for compliance means I come to you, uh, Lauren, and I say, hey, I need a work product from you. And I'm going to give you advice and training and provide opportunities so that you can deliver on the thing that I need from you. Mm. That's coaching for compliance. And there's nothing wrong with that. We have to do that, right? I need things from you, I'm, and, and it's my job to provide you with the tools in order to so that you can do that. The other is coaching for, for compassion, which is more about where do you want to go in your career. So we're going to have that compliance conversation. What do we need mm -hmm. to do? But then we're going to stop and we're going to say, so... Five years from now, you don't need any money. Um, what would you do? And, you know, can I help you along that career path? What does that do? You know, some would argue, hey, you're, you're investing in Lauren so that she can leave your organization. Is that a good use of your time? <laughs> Whatever that is. Yep. And I know something, which is Lauren isn't going to stay with this organization forever, most likely anyways. And um, however, if... If she feels like she's getting something as well as giving something, there's going to be even more passion coming to your work. You're going to be more effective for the time that we have you. And so, you know, any any leader you speak to says, I think I have been successful when one of my staff that I've invested in leaves for a better job. And I believe that. And we also have seen there's a boomerang, too, which is sometimes people leave for a higher paying job and then they come back. And frequently they come back, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say the public sector mission 
is something I'm super passionate about. I felt it when I worked for the university. Education makes a difference. And we in state government make a difference. Back in 1998, I left for the private sector and a lot more money. And I left for eight months. And I was trying to motivate myself behind, if I do this and I work harder, the company will make more profits. And I couldn't do it. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, my wife and I said, what if we just go back to Maine and drive used cars for the rest of our lives? And we, you know, there was an unequivocal, let's do that. So that's another thing is make sure that people understand that they, their sense of purpose and where do they need to be, where they're going to thrive. And so that kind of mentorship can give them, help them find that sense of purpose. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> so we picked um, two cybersecurity related news. And the first one is sophisticated foreign attacks straying main cyber resources. I'm going to read two quotes from this um, website, and then um, Bryson and Connor are going to um, ask you a few questions. So the first one is, Maine may have a smaller cyber footprint than more um, populous states, but what's also smaller is the number of resources it has to devote to current um, threats. And the second one, Maine is facing a continuous threat from the hackers who are desperately looking to breach the computer networks. So what strategies um, do you have to manage cyber threats here, especially where uh, resources and people are limited? Okay. Thanks, Connor. Um, I, I remember doing this interview, and it was right on the heels of us having a pretty difficult situation where we had uh, a foreign nation working at, at penetrating our defenses. And it wasn't, oh, look, we had a bad night. It was, we had a bad month. Because <laughs> they didn't just like, we're trying to get in and we'll stop because we didn't, we weren't successful. It was, we're going to keep trying. And, um, you know, what did I have for a team on the ground? I was about six months into the job. The administration had been in place for nine months. The budget that we were working on had been predominantly developed by the prior administration. So there was some, you know, there was some underfunding going on. We had a limited staff. And um, the staff were saying, hey, we've seen a spike here. And we're dealing with this. And a couple days went by, and I finally said, folks, I think this is bigger than us. And I got on the phone. And I called CISA. And there was a, an agent who was... Uh, his house is in Beverly, Massachusetts. And he said, if you don't mind, <laughs> I can be, I can pack a bag and I can be in your office in two and a half hours. Thank you. He comes <laughs> wow. up. MSISAC was one of the organizations that had a sensor on our network that had said, we just saw something. And they notified us. At the same time, we had a managed service uh, with another company, a private sector company, who said, we just saw activity on a desktop that matches this profile, and they alerted us. So we had outside, two outside contracts that notified us that there was a problem. So again, not my internal staff, but where we were smart was we had relationships out there that were really positive. So then we start making phone calls. And our vendor partners were really great. They started swooping in from all angles. We had the FBI on the phone. We had CISA. We had other folks like the main emergency management agency coming and working with us saying, if things go bad, you know, we're here to help with the situation. Uh, I had an early call with the National Guard. And so one of the things that I discovered in that, and I have a, we have a deputy chief information security officer who, you know, likes to say, and, I, and I'll get the quote wrong, but 
Better than a robust set of staff is a very robust um, address book, is we got lots of people we can call and, you know, sort of getting to that point where this is not a failing of ours to call somebody else mm -hmm. in. Uh, these folks, that's what they do. And so leveraging those partnerships, and we have even seen um, where one state might help another state in a pinch. Um, certainly, and we have a, a pretty impressive National Guard contingent around cyber that if things got really bad, they could be activated to provide assistance. So that's the big one for me is do we have a portfolio of processes? Do we have a portfolio of tools? And do we have a really good address book with folks that we can call? Um, the last one is the, the agent from CISA came up and he said, hey, look, I've got some guidelines I have to work under, which is one, I'm not allowed to touch your keyboards. I, I'm here to help. I'm here to advise. And he said, now let's talk about what are your recovery plans if this goes bad? And so that's also really helpful to say he's going two, three steps forward while the, the team is sort of fighting the fire. He's saying, and what happens if the house actually burns down? Where are we going to live? So those kinds of people bringing those in and really, you know, that also helped us look at our own portfolio of disaster recovery plans, uh, detection mechanisms, all the full suite of our security program, we get to take a look at that. And so that's the big one for us is we may have limited staff, but we got lots of partners who can help us on a bad day. Yeah, certainly. And our professors are always telling us, uh, build your networks because you never know when <laughs> yeah. those people may come in handy. It right. may not be tomorrow or even five years, but they're going to be there. Um and you, and you just talked a lot about how Maine deals with some of those cyber threats and even uh, scenarios they've had to deal with um, in the past. But what would you recommend for maybe an individual organization that's trying to avoid, you know, these types of cybersecurity threats? Um, first and foremost, figure out where you're at. Um, you know, if you're a small organization, there's some questions you can ask yourself. <laughs> Are my employees trained? Uh, you'd be surprised the number of organizations say, well, I think we did that like five years ago. Uh, so that's one. So do an assessment on where you're at with your education. Do an assessment of your critical systems and come up with a plan. Say, what happens if, you know, you're the university, what happens if we lose bright space for a week? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, what are your plans for that? What, yeah. are, what are the faculty going to do? There should be plans for these things. So that assessment and the education are probably the first things that I would do. I would also make sure that if the bad thing happens, do you know who to call? Um, you know, the, the common expression in the industry is don't be trading business cards on the day that it goes bad. Make sure you're already familiar with one another. There's lots of organizations out there that maybe don't even have an IT or cyber team of their own. They rely on a company. Ask the company that you're working with and say, what are your plans for us? What are your disaster recovery plans? What are your policies? And so that's really the place to start, you know, and limit your exposure. I think you guys probably, I'm sure you've been through a lot of this in your classwork is don't have services turned on on systems that aren't in use. Uh, you know, only do what is necessary out there. That would be the advice. But first and foremost, assess. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, so um, I guess we'll move on to our next article, which I guess a little more just generally we're kind of we're going to be just asking a little bit of some questions about uh, some main just recently announced. Well, I guess this is October, but they announced a new uh, chief data officer, which is uh, Ken Boyklin. Um, as the article says, he um, he had already been working for the state for about five years, uh, and he'll be charged with developing the state's data governance program to improve consistency, integrity, privacy, and availability of data. 
Um, this is quoting you um, exactly, saying, uh, this program is intended to underpin state efforts to improve digital services for residents and harness data to better inform decision-making. So um, why is it important for Maine to have a data governance um, program? So we have a lot of data, as you can imagine, and it's all in silos. Uh, and a lot of those silos have federal regulations around how you store it, how it can be shared. So there's a lot of rules and operations, both federal and state law, that we're operating within. And there's a challenge around that, which is we want to effectively use our data. And there's a bill uh, that went that was passed this spring by the legislature, LD-1602, which establishes a data governance program. There was a strong interest from the bill sponsor um, Representative Rachel Talbot Ross, who actually is from here in Portland, to say we need programs that make sure that we, the the elected officials, are making good decision making um, when it comes to how our deci our decisions are impacting different populations in the state. It's predominantly interested in those populations that are historically disadvantaged. So how are we combining what what we know? in order to make sure we're making the most effective decisions on behalf of the, of the citizens. Same thing from the, from the executive branch, all the decisions we make. So that's important. So how are we effectively using data to make sure we're serving the public to our very best ability? That's one side. The other side for me is efficient delivery of services. And that means, you know, I'm a citizen. I come to the state for it, and I'll just use, you know, this is a, you know, maybe a smaller example, but I come to the state and I say, I've just moved and I need a new driver's license and I change my address. I now have to go tell inland fisheries and wildlife that I changed my address because I get a fishing license. I need to tell whatever other benefits I may be, you know, so I work with all these agencies individually. I'm trying to find things about myself and there could be great opportunities to actually join some of these data sets and say, uh, you know, you are eligible for, uh, we see you're subscribed to this type of assistance program. We have a new program coming on that we think that you might be eligible for as well. Would you like to know more? So like helping people find things. Now this is a, there's some dangers in here too, which is what's appropriate for sharing data? Um, you know, I talked about the citizen trust in us earlier. And so data governance has a stronger role than just saying, how do we more effectively use our data? But how do we also make sure that we're using it in ways that the public would be comfortable with? Um, you know, this is, a, I'll give you a very extreme example, but if, if I am known to Health and Human Services as, a, as somebody with an opioid addiction, I may not be excited if they're, to find out that that data is somehow being shared with public safety. I mean, that's an extreme example. So we also have what can we legally do, but we also have that question, just because we can do it legally doesn't mean that we should. And so the strength of a data governance program has a number of these elements. It's not really a technology issue. The IT people can figure out the, the mechanisms, you know, how do we join this database to this database. But really the questions are what are our priorities to best serve citizens and what is the right thing to do? So even though it's legal, again, it may not be the right thing to do. So these are the things that a data governance program looks at, being aware of federal legislation, state state laws around data sharing, uh, to make sure that we're doing right by that. It's really nice to hear that, because you know a lot of people think that these these systems and services may be working against them and doing things that they they think is you know more beneficial for them. But, you know, you're really going out of your way to figure out 
you know, how, how are these people going to benefit and is it the right thing to do? It's really nice to hear that. And I'm sure a lot of people need to hear that because they don't really understand that. So do you believe that other states should have a chief data officer and a data governance program, if not already? Most of them do. And those, those chief data officers sometimes are aligned with IT, sometimes they're not. I don't necessarily think the, the chief data officer has to be in IT. It really is a governance kind of role. Uh, so most do. However, if you start to go to those different states and say, what does your chief data officer do? You may find that the sort of the sophistication of the data governance programs vary um, and the mission given to the CDO. You know, their charge, here's what we want you to get done, may vary as well. Some of them are just hyper-focused on uh, op an open data program. You know, some states have an open data portal, and the CDO's real responsibility is making sure that agencies are providing that data that they can put into this portal. Um, others, you know, that, again, as you wander around from state to state, one of the, the common sayings we say is, if you've seen one state, you've seen one state. <laughs> and the same thing goes for the CDO role. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you're not going to have the the uh, chief data officer of New York doing the same task. No. <laughs> and, you know, there's another role that's emerging. And the last I knew, we were up to about 26 states that had one. And I'm very interested in, you know, becoming maybe 27, is the role of a chief privacy officer. So somebody whose sole function is to establish a strong privacy program across the state. Uh, and right now, our, you know, it's, it's actually within um, my statute is that I am supposed to ensure some privacy. Um, our CDO is now taking on part of that role uh, from my statute as well, and, and will help make sure that we're doing a good job on that. I certainly know that this administration is very serious about it. Uh, but ultimately, I would like to have someone who just eats, eats sleeps, and breathes <laughs> privacy. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're definitely seeing an uprise in people's concerns over their privacy. You know, I think people are starting to really understand what these these apps and web services are, are doing with your data mm -hmm. and, and uh, how they affect your privacy. And, and I mean, we're seeing, um, you know, United Kingdom pass certain bills and things like that uh, to, to really look at this further. And I'm glad, you know, that there's movements toward that. As IT professionals, future cyber and IT professionals, it is something that you'll have to pay a lot of attention to. The, um, the EU passed the, the GDPR I think about four or five years ago, four years ago maybe. And lots of states are spinning up. California did. Virginia has followed suit with very stringent privacy laws for both businesses and government operations in the state. And those privacy laws are, you know, taking the consumer or the public into mind are very strong, but they're also very challenging for us because things like the right to be forgotten. What does it mean for me to come forward and say, I don't want to be in your system anymore? But... Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have a role. I, you know, if you think about even in the university system, if someone came in and said, I want to be forgotten, well, you, you know, the university reports to the federal government on students. There's lots of sort of uh, analytical things that are needed. I mean, there's a lot of repercussions around that that IT professionals are going to be facing uh, more and more. So it's a big deal. It's a lot of work. But mm -hmm. it's also, I think, as you noted, it's very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. Well, that was all the questions we had for you today. Is there anything you'd like for to let your our listeners know? Well, I, if I could, I would just like to hear, you know, if you guys want to take 30 seconds each to say, mm -hmm. what do you hope to do in your career? <laughs> what are your dreams about it? Well, I guess I can start off and um, talked about before the podcast, we talked a little bit about how I, uh, I, I really got into the industry 
through schooling and um, what my teachers uh, had to give me. And I guess I, I guess overall, I just like to give that back uh, and help educate people. It's kind of what we're doing here in this program, but to extend it further, uh, maybe to a younger audience someday would be really nice. Great. Um, I'm not really sure. I I just want to work somewhere where I don't dread going to work every day. And <laughs> I'm able to work with a good team and uh, I guess also be able to give back and be a, be a mentor hopefully someday. So Great. I, I guess I'm kind of similar to Connor a little bit, but you know, I guess to add more into that, always my I, I, like I'm very interested in looking into the public sector because I feel like in general my my general idea that I really would like to is I, I, I just, I'd like to go to a job where I don't feel like, you know, the main goal is just making money, making money, making money. It definitely is making a positive impact in the world and making people's lives better. And yeah, it's kind of the same thing for me, actually. I want to help people uh, using cybersecurity and technology and all that. And now our community, especially here in Portland, you know, a lot of immigrants and low-income families, there are a lot of people out there who are not familiar with cybersecurity. So let's see, maybe cybersecurity consulting or something that, anything that connects me to the community and uh, it doesn't make me um, sit in the office, you know, the whole day and typing and, and all that. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Uh, and, you know, I can't say enough for the public mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if, about 10 years ago, someone said, okay, imagine yourself as 65 years old, you've retired, you're looking back on your career. What do you want to say about it? I know some people will say, I want to I say that my bank account is big. I want to look <laughs> back, and I know this sounds a little bit bleeding heart, but I want to look back and say, I think I made a difference to people around me, to my community. Correct, yes. um, I want to know I did, I did good, and I helped. Um, and I would say for the, anybody that thinks about the public sector mission, uh, it is as rewarding as it can get. And just, you know, shameless plug, we certainly have lots of opening cyber positions. So anyone that would love to come work for the state, we would love to have <laughs> you there. Certainly, yeah. So Definitely be keeping that in mind. Okay. <laughs> and thank you all for taking this on. Yeah, thank well, you. I appreciate thank you what so you do. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.